Hello and welcome to a special edition of Crossing Channels, the podcast which brings together the interdisciplinary strengths of the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. I'm Rory Catlin-Jones and today's special episode sees us come together with our colleagues at the Kyiv School of Economics in Ukraine. We would like to extend our strongest support to everyone in Ukraine at the moment and in particular to our colleagues in academia, policy and journalism who are working through this crisis. This episode has the title, The Ukraine Invasion, Context, Consequences and the Information War. To explore these issues today, we are very lucky to be joined by Natalia Shapoval from the Kyiv School of Economics. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us at this time. Uh, can you tell us briefly, first of all, what you work on, what your re- main research interests are? Hello, everyone. So I'm head of a local think tank in Ukraine. I work on all kinds of areas that are policy relevant uh, during a certain period of time. Mostly these are uh, healthcare. I work on financial protection of uh, citizens uh, in Ukraine and in developing countries on public procurement uh, and uh, whatever reform our government is doing at the moment. To discuss the conflict with Natalia, we have Horacio Largi from the IAST. Horacio, can you remind us of your main research interests? Yeah, so I'm, I'm an economist and political scientist that works in political economy and economic development. Prior to the pandemic, I had a lot of work focusing on the importance of information mostly that disseminated via social media for accountability. But post-pandemic, essentially, I've been using the tools I was employing for those questions and trying to understand much more the impact of misinformation and, importantly, like different ways to counter it. So misinformation, obviously going to be a key theme in our discussions uh, because there is an information war going on. And our final guest is Aisha Zarakol from the University of Cambridge. Aisha, what do you focus on? Hello, um, I'm a professor of international relations and among other things I work on East-West relations from a historical perspective and most recently I'm the author of Before the West which came out yesterday. So, Thank you very much. Obviously I'd like to start by asking Natalia a simple and pretty obvious question. What is life like in Ukraine for you right now, for you, your colleagues and families? So I left Kiev the capital city where I lived uh, on 21st of February. We woke up uh, from the airstrikes in Kiev and uh, went out of the city with my husband and uh, several of our relatives. My team, which is uh, around 50 people, 50 analysts, some of them stayed in Kiev and still stayed there. Some of them... uh, were mobilized, so they voluntarily joined the military forces the first uh, day of uh, the war. And uh, with most of our team, we have uh, still a connection. Even those who are fighting in the military or in territorial defense units. In general, the country can be divided uh, into two parts. One part is uh, where the active military action is going on like Kiev or Kharkiv or Donetsk or Odessa or Sumy. In these uh, regions, there are very huge problems with everything. They mostly are disconnected from electricity, heating, gas, have water supply problems. 
some cities are destructed completely and uh, people are being evacuated to the degree it's, the system can cope with that. But then there is another part of the country which is mostly Western and uh, Central Ukraine. And uh, in this part, business is working. There are no kinds of huge economic issues. So everything is working. Of course, on all territory of Ukraine, there are military forces, territorial defense units. On the roads, uh, you would have posts. Uh, everyone is being checked what's going on. In every city and village, mobilization is going on. Soldiers are being sent to different locations. Near the borders of Ukraine, in the West, uh, there are long queues for transport and for people because some are trying to relocate, some are trying to get back. Some people are very much okay, like I am. I relocated from my flat and uh, I have only like one sweater and one pair of shoes with me, but uh, I never, like, I, I'm okay. I always live like that. But for some people, it's much more difficult because they did not have savings. They have relatives that cannot move or who have very serious diseases and they are totally in different situation. Many families had to send their men to military forces. So in general, that's, that's how it looks right now. And is your academic work continuing? Obviously, you're, you're a whole group of academics who've got a great track record of analysing policy and so on. Are you able in any way to see this through a, an academic lens? Because it must be very difficult. For instance, had you any view about whether this was likely to happen? Did it come as a huge surprise? Uh, can you analyse what Putin has done and uh, is likely to do? So we work as analysts right now too, trying to contribute to winning in this war. For example, we do monitoring of all kinds of damages that Russia done to Ukraine to calculate all the costs and uh, make them pay the bill every penny. We follow sanctions and every day we propose uh, new ideas about the sanctions. Uh, we also trying to look into supply chains that can be disrupted and uh, how that could be replaced into some global issues that can happen, like food security. We were analyzing what's going to happen and how to prevent it. Of course, it's not the academic depth and it's something that you can come up with during the day or during a few hours. But that's the only thing that we can do, you know, push the buttons on the computer, make tables uh, in uh, Excel. We also try to collaborate with uh, our partner institutions in uh, US and in Europe and involve them into some questions. And we try to participate in as many uh, like conferences and events about the war to, you know, bring the perspective of Ukrainian people into the discussion and give Ukraine like more agency because, you know, there are many frustrating things for us in how this question has been covered of the war. Tell me about that. What, what are your frustrations? Uh, firstly, it's very frequently about Putin and Russia and then about uh, US and Europe, like Ukraine doesn't have agency here, which is, of course, not true. Secondly, what I really hate is when people start discussing uh, Putin's strategy. That's also frustrating because, of course, killing people is 
very easy thing to do and there is no much strategy or something. He's just murderer and he spent last 20 years to achieve what he have uh, now and to enslave uh, his people and build this autocratic regime. I don't think that people should call it strategy or something. It's just crime. What is your aim in your research in trying to change that narrative? What kind of data are you trying to generate that that will give a, a fuller, richer story of what is happening to the, the Ukraine people and the Ukraine economy? Me personally, I'm trying to bring in perspective of uh, humanity into that and uh, tell that basically this is crime of Putin against uh, Ukrainian uh, people, and this should be punished accordingly. So it's just very, you know, humane dialogue with other people and uh, just sharing how it looks from here and uh, explaining that we are the same as uh, they uh, are. Uh, me and my husband, we could well also live in U.S. So he's a U.S. professor, actually. He teaches in Pittsburgh University. Then uh, we are trying to explain it's also you know not very academic thing but just to explain that we stay here in in ukraine not because we are suffering or we need help or something but explain that uh, we just don't wanna give for anybody right to decide instead of us whether we should leave or how we should think about so it's more about general humanity than about some academic frameworks. My friend, uh, who is a sociologist, he also brings as much as possible all kinds of sociological data to show how uh, united and uh, people in Ukraine are. For example, like almost 80% of Ukrainians think that Ukraine will win the war. And uh, most of people in Ukraine are now for joining the European Union. So all kinds of, you know, sociological data that we try to bring in. Natalia, I want to focus on your experience as an, an economist and policymaker to get a sense of what happens in government during an extraordinary crisis like this. On this podcast, we talk about policy changes as a, a long, slow process, which can take years to happen. Of course, that's not the case here. Things are changing so fast. In your experience over the last week, even, what, what do governments do? What are their policy priorities? Are, are you seeing policy formed in front of your very eyes? Yes. So the government uh, and uh, parliament and office of president, they are uh, real heroes. Uh, firstly, because they stay in uh, the government uh, buildings and uh, don't leave that, despite of uh, numerous uh, reports from intelligence agencies about uh, attempts of uh, Putin to kill uh, the president. And uh, basically, the whole day of communication is about some kind of denazification, which implies that uh, people who are in politics should should disappear somehow. Secondly, there are several fronts of uh, work of the government. First is international relations, of course. So the Office of the President and the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs, they work 24-7 to talk to all international partners, propose uh, sanctions, uh, request uh, all kinds of support, then there is a front of internal work. It's led by the central bank, ministry of finance, and the ministry of economy. 
So the central bank is uh, supporting macrofinancial stability right now. Uh, the exchange rate is fine. The uh, reserves uh, of the bank are okay. They uh, created special account to collect uh, donations for the needs of the military. So, you, you know, there are all kinds of macroprudential regulations and uh, they are being changed in order to make it uh, easier to donate to Ukraine in all kinds of currencies, etc. They also uh, issued special military bonds for internal markets to uh, collect money for the needs of the military forces of Ukraine. So you're painting a picture of the economy working surprisingly well, given this huge shock. This is true, or partially true, of course. On the one hand, for example, prices are stable, but then uh, in some places there is nothing that you can buy with this money. But policy making is very timely, very appropriate, and there are changes every day. They come up with new ideas that respond to the problems that emerge. I suppose in normal times, academics like you, economists in particular, would have a very kind of uh, objective view and often a critical view of government policy. But is there a feeling now that that just would not be appropriate, that you're all in this together, your job is more to lend support to the government in in every way possible? That's a very good comment. Of course, my my work as a think tank is to evaluate what the government is doing, make some uh, proposals. Some of my teammates are sometimes quite critical about what the government and the president office are doing. But uh, right now, I guess the general feeling in uh, Ukraine is that we all are impressed with uh, how well the government is responding to the situation and we all are impressed with the behavior of the president, with his courage, and uh, with uh, how capable he is of telling the truth to all these big guys in U.S., in Russia, and uh, everywhere. So it's not, you know, the consideration of whether it's appropriate or not. It's just we genuinely are respect what's being done um, by them and trying to help uh, in every way possible. What impact do you think, that it's very, obviously it's ridiculously early to say this, what lasting impact is this war going to have on Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian society, that would stay even if, amazingly, the Russian troops were to just leave? Will there be lasting impacts? I think the world will not be the same after this war in many respects. First, uh, huge impact for the world for the upcoming year or maybe even several years is uh, related to food security. Ukraine and Russia are about one third of uh, global market of uh, wheat and corn and some agri-products. And uh, right now it's a period when farmers and agri-holdings should be like doing all kinds of uh, planting seeds, uh, putting fertilizers into the ground. And this is not happening either here. And in Russia, it's also distorted. So there will be significant influence on the global market, not only in terms of prices, but also through deficit. There are around 
400 million people in the world that are like end users of Ukrainian agri-products. They might not receive that. Some of the products can be substituted, but like wheat can be substituted by rice, for example. But then food for animals that are brought for meat, it's not that easily substitutable. So uh, there will be all kinds of effect. Then energy market uh, in Ukraine and uh, in Europe in general will change. Maybe, you know, to better because... I think the world will, will not allow uh, Russia to have such a leverage on the natural gas market and oil market as uh, they had before. It was so so ironic that uh, just uh, before the war, during the whole uh, winter, Russia was charging several times higher price for the natural gas from Europe just to create the reserves for the central bank and have enough liquidity to conduct the war. It's so like stupid to be in this situation right now. And I think it will change. Uh, all countries will diversify and um, Ukraine will become like independent with our energy resources. That's, that's for sure. Aisha Zarakol, how does this all change? Ukraine standing? I mean, obviously, extraordinary support for Ukraine. Does that persist in your view? I think so, yes. To some extent, uh, this has made an impression on Western publics in a way that other, even previous conflicts in Ukraine haven't. So I think that's going to, that's going to be remembered and there's going to be, I mean, of course, there is material pain and real suffering. But in the long term, I think it will help uh, Ukraine's standing in the international community. And there will be some uh, good things maybe to come out of this period of suffering for Ukraine. I'd like to move the conversation on to what is one extraordinary factor in this, the information war. And Arathio Laragi, this is your specialism. You've had a, a look at, particularly during the pandemic, the epidemic of misinformation. What are you observing about who's winning that information war? I, I saw... Uh, an article in a, in the Financial Times, I think, uh, this week, stating that this was one area where Ukraine was definitely winning. Is that your assessment? So certainly, like, it's important to point out that you know this is like not new because of social media misinformation is very widespread. Uh, but this is common to every war. For example, you know when uh, shortly after rising to power, sort of Hitler created the Reich Ministry of, of Enlightenment and, and Propaganda. Sort of, so you have a sense of and and so this has this is has, strategy has been used in history in every war, mostly to pit people against each other and uh, and to destabilize governments. So I think that those are the two key components that are also here. And I think that there are two parts that are, I think that, that are important. So I think like so there are two two important distinctions when it comes to misinformation. One is kind of the misinformation so towards Ukraine and the ones basically like towards Russia. And even even within Ukraine, you can split it again between two. Sort of like uh, those essentially towards kind of the the like Russian minorities. So essentially, when it comes to the misinformation towards the Russians sort of in Ukraine, especially a strategy to, to try to stabilize the government 
by saying you know that you know it's like a Nazi government and, and they were committing all these atrocities uh, uh, towards the Russian minorities. I think that in that sense, that, that clearly that seems that you know that war and misinformation sort of has been lost. It's not really obvious though that that you know the Russians are sort of uh, uh, or like, I would say I like to say the Kremlin uh, rather than the Russians because I'm not sure like they, they necessarily represent um, the majority of the people. But I think that so the Kremlin you know clearly has done a, a pretty good job. So destabilizing sort of the insurgent areas and sort of it's not, you know, that, that people decided one is one day to raise in arms. You know, sort of we have a since the end of the Cold War, the Kremlin has been extremely active in propaganda and, and, and disinformation and misinformation strategies to really, you know, try to like um, create a buffer. And I think in that sense, like the fact that we are we have the some support from within Ukraine. For like the, so the Russian troops to enter and, and sort of in, in a quote unquote justified way, they kind of won on that sense. And it's kind of too late by now. The fascinating thing about the information war within Russia, the Russian government to its own people, because we're used to hearing that misinformation is massively spread on social media and mainstream media has less of it. It seems in this case, it's the other way around that the misinformation channel is kind of state TV in Russia. And the only hope of Russian people getting access to more accurate information is via social media. Is that is that fair? The Russian misinformation sort of apparatus, it's it's a massive thing that uh, goes beyond just the, the state media. There's a lot of monitoring uh, from like TBANQ uh, and also like news guard in the States and sort of in many places. It's like, it's just impressive the amount of, of misinformation narratives they have created for like different purposes. So I, I don't think, unfortunately, that it's, it's just restricted to, to state media. Of, of course, this is a big component and uh, they have a, an important uh, control that but essentially I, I think that it's pretty big and actually and what's what's sad here is I think it's pretty, somewhat effective and it's not clear that, you know that, that we're winning that war it's kind of hard to get a good grasp from like kind of western media on, on kind of what's going on within Russia but if you talk to people that have family over there and sort of and also academics um like things are pretty polarized it's not the case that you know everybody's totally against the war I think that there has been a lot of narratives about kind of the threat of, of Ukraine joining NATO and how that you know was affecting sort of Russia narratives about like uh, genocide of, of Russians by the Ukrainian government. I think essentially there's been a lot of work that has been done on the misinformation front to to gather some support. That I think is still present and sort of we have to see how the war evolves. But I think in that that front at least we're, we're not winning. I'm sure we're losing, but uh, it's not clear that um, what's going to happen. Aisha, you you wanted to come in there. Yes, I just had something to add, which is that this question of why the Russians, some Russians still support Kremlin or support uh, the invasion, I mean, to the extent that they even know it's <laughs> happening or whatever they think is happening. The, the word invasion, the word war is actually banned by yes. the Russian media. The support is, it's not just misinformation. I think it's important to realize it is a kind of misinformation, but uh, Kremlin usually uses various historical grievances that have some basis in fact and points to examples of, you know, Western hypocrisy, etc. So building kind of a misinformation narrative around things that people can generally agree on, and then it becomes very difficult to know what's, what's real, what's happening now, what's in the past. There's kind of a blurring of different, like, layers of truth and uh, misinformation. I think that's important to realize. Natalia, what's your view on how this information war is going from a Ukrainian point of view. Is your government being successful in kind of combating this Russian narrative? I think my government um, is uh, very effective on the global arena. 
and uh, very effective in uh, getting the messages about how important military support is now, sanctions, and mobilizing international community. At the same time, I don't think that anyone is effective against uh, Russian propaganda, because my perspective is that Putin has been working on uh, creating mindset of many people in Russia for years. Like, as an example, there are priests in churches that draw on these spiritual paintings, they draw Putin. On these icons? Yes, on icons. That's kind of, you know, it's not about social media or any specific channel. It is the systemic effort. The same is happening in all kind of law enforcement agencies. For example, my father-in-law, he is in some kind of Russian military forces. And uh, he sends to our family, to Ukraine, videos about Ukrainian protests, saying that you all are Nazis and you all should die. And it cannot be contributed to one kind of to media or anything. It's just very systemic and uh, it cannot be uh, reversed. And this is your own family, in effect, Yes, divided by this. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, Really, it's uh, striking how far can person brain be out of from reality. I didn't think that it's even possible, but yeah, that's how it is. Uh, let's look at this conflict from a broader perspective with you, Aisha Zariko, who, who you specialize in East-West relations. Was this predictable? How does it fit in with uh, the kind of post-Cold War history? For the most part, international relations experts recently did not expect an invasion of the scale. There was some expectation of something happening similar to what happened previously, maybe an Eastern uh, incursion or something like that. What's taken pe- most people by surprise is the fact that the whole country is targeted. So that's that's come as a surprise to most, I think, IR experts. Now, there is a school of thought in international relations called realism, and they've been predicting since the end of Cold War that Russia was going to do something like this. And um, it's it's a line of argument that puts most of the blame on Western um, expansion essentially into Russia's neighborhood or what, what they call the backyard. And it's only natural, they argue, that Russia and Putin was going to do something aggressive in return. But I think that line of argument overlooks a number of things. First, it overlooks, as Natalia said, Ukrainian agency, and Ukrainians genuinely express desire to, <laughs> to make their own choices about which community they wanted to belong to. So putting all the blame on the West makes it seem like Ukrainians had no say in the matter. And I think it also overlooks the fact that I mean, what seems to have precipitated this latest invasion is a perception of Western weakness rather than strength. I mean, it's the fact that Putin has gotten away with so much of, uh, you know, smaller scale type of violations of sovereignty, whether in, you know, Ukraine or, you know, Georgia or Syria, etc. And a general perception of chaos and weakness in Western leadership. So he seems to have made the calculus that, you know, he could do this. 
and you know get away with it. Maybe that's a different way of blaming the West, but it's not <laughs> Western expansion and show of strength and Russian background that provokes it. Uh, finally, I think there are very Russia-based uh, reasons for why Kremlin has done this. One is, you know, we could talk about imperial hangover or you know great power hangover. This idea that Russia is naturally and for historical reasons entitled <laughs> to its previous you know holdings and ukraine i think seems to be a very special case even more than you know the baltics and elsewhere i think it's difficult for putin but maybe for generally russians to digest the idea that russia is not part of the west so how could ukraine be and also i think you know we should factor in Putin's own desire for survival and how he uses war and you know foreign activities to shore up his base and consolidate support for some of the you know misinformation <laughs> disinformation reasons we discussed before i mean given all that now that it has happened it seems like you know it was almost overdetermined but i th- i think most of us didn't expect the scale of you know what's what's happening i find it quite unbelievable still actually and there's extraordinary things happening that presumably vladimir putin didn't expect that it has united the West in a way. It's pushing countries towards NATO and the EU. It's isolating Russia. It's potentially having a huge impact on the Russian economy. There are going to be lasting effects. It's going to be a different world, whatever happens. Is, is, is that fair to say? Yes. So first, the scale of you know, the invasion has, been, has taken many by surprise. But also, it's you know, the answer <laughs> of the West, the fact that it's almost maybe sad to say, but we've gotten used to, you know, EU responding to various crises around the world saying, we're very concerned, you know, but this time they're doing more. I mean, what they're doing may not be enough still in the short term, but at least, you know, they've seemed to, not just the EU, but the West as a community have come together in a way that's also signaling to other states that are more peripheral, like I'm originally from Turkey, you know, Erdogan was hedging his bets, but now, you know, reading the tea leaves, I think he's seeing he has to kind of stick with the Western community. And I think we're going to see if if the West can keep it up, we'll see more and more on that. And also involving, you know, others like India and China, they don't they don't seem to be supporting Putin. They have more of a wait and see kind of attitude at the moment. We're moving towards the end. And in a way, I'd like to get each of you and obviously I'll end with Natalia to Give us your thoughts and, and feelings about what the end game is here. First, Arafio Laragi from uh, from Toulouse. How is this information war? How is that going to play out? Is that going to be crucial in determining whether Putin eventually withdraws? Academics get uncomfortable, you know, predicting things that that they're not sure about. But I'll I'll, I'll take my chances. So my I guess non-academic say on this is uh it's it's going to be pretty crucial. I think in Russia how things are going to play out, essentially how much this can continue. You can subject people to misinformation to the extent that they don't get uh, like a feedback that counters that narrative. And I think that essentially if things get particularly bad, something I thought was fascinating is that they were allowing Russian soldiers to call back. And I think essentially like if, if there is some information that can just go back to Russia, and so there's a change in perceptions about things that are going on, the Russians right now don't have, you know, that might help a little to you know, soak away the support that Putin has right now. That might be an important angle, I think, um, from the misinformation side, but we'll see. It's hard to, you know, like uh, have some scientific 
prediction on that. But I think that if, if I had to speak on the misinformation side, I would say that, you know, that's going to be pretty crucial. And Aisha Zarako, is this about giving, this is this terrible expression, giving Putin an off-ramp? Is there some scenario you can see where he can emerge in his view with some kind of victory that would not be too costly for Ukraine or the West? Well, that's that's a difficult question. Um, I mean, I think whatever happens, he's going to spin it as a victory at home. The question is, is, is there something that the Ukrainian government can live with? And I think, you know, they've expressed some willingness to discuss, uh, you know, neutrality and other guarantees. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose that would be the best case scenario. Natalia Shapoval, have have you got any hopes now that this this terrible war, this brutal invasion can end with Russia agreeing to withdraw? So I'm coming from the point of view that Putin already presented himself to the international community in the way that there is no way back for him. After shooting people in Ukraine, after bombing nuclear plants in the middle of Europe, after sending the military planes to Sweden, I don't think that anyone can tolerate this among the global leaders. And uh, I'm coming from the second assumption that Putin already lost everything. So scenarios that I see, uh, I see three of them. One is that after the next threat to nuclear plant in uh, Ukraine, it will be the end point for the foreign leaders and they will get much more aggressive than they were. And uh, this will end Putin's leadership. Second scenario is that the situation will continue as it is right now. Everybody will be deeply concerned uh, in the West, uh, will be sending all kinds of military equipment to Ukraine, but will not engage more directly, for example, by closing the air, making no flight zone above Ukraine. And that will continue and continue for quite a long period of time and make just a huge frozen conflict like it was with Donbass, and, but on the much larger territory. Third scenario would be that there would be some kind of internal war inside of Russia. Because so the whole idea of sanctions, as I see it, is not just like isolate Russia or reduce resources for Putin, but also to signal and inform Russian citizens on what's really going on. And uh, sanctions are getting much more targeted toward regular citizens every day. So today we were writing, you know, recommendations to uh, ban the access to all kind of like DuPont, you know, company technologies or Unilever technologies and patents. So if Russia doesn't uh, like Western culture, then okay, they can use their own soap and uh, their own vests without Kevlar. (laughs) And that will get even more tough every day of war. And uh, I think at some point, even Russian people who are in general feel okay being enslaved by their regime, they still, some of them will protest 
against what's going on, and that will create a huge unrest inside of the country, which will also end what's going on in Ukraine. So that's scenarios that I see. Uh, it's all quite futuristic, you know, and s- s- like from the fantasy book, but everything that we live in is quite like a fantasy book over the last days. And finally, very briefly, what would you say about your morale and the morale of the Ukrainian people? Um, we feel very good in general, of course, except for people who are vulnerable in all kind of, you know, academic definition, like other um, economically or socially or through their health. The rest uh, are very much okay because we feel very true to ourselves by fighting against uh, evil and we feel very united and uh, we feel actually support of all the countries of uh, all kinds of communities around the world and uh, we are on the good side of the history and we just don't want to you know live in the world where killing of people can be tolerated so we don't feel suffering or anything and we fight and we are sure that we will win in this war. Well, I'm sure I speak for all of us in saying we wish you and the Ukrainian people all, all the best in, in, in your attempts to repel this invasion. That's all we have time for on this episode. Thanks to our expert panel, uh, Aisha Zarakol from Cambridge University, Arathio Largi from the IAST, and Natalia Shapalov from the Kiev School of Economics. This episode was recorded on Friday the 4th of March. Given the pace of change in Ukraine, events may have overtaken us by the time of release. Please join us next month for another edition of Crossing Channels.